Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we are back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more light, and more love. Today, we are here, and we're doing a lecture episode, an incredible lecture episode to balance out our last week's episode, where we talked to Penelope Badger, and she talked about her experience channeling Archangel Lucifer. She channeled a lot of other people, but that book was about that. It created a little bit of stir. I got some feedback, which we won't discuss right now, but I just want to say that we should all together as spiritual people be able to listen to these topics, to these subjects and try to understand where people come from, the resonance points the intersection points where you can meet someone and, and communicate. You may not agree with every single thing that every single person says in your life, but that doesn't mean you can't listen to what they're saying and give them absolute respect and love the same kind of love you would expect for yourself. So last week we did Penelope Badger channeling Archangel Lucifer. Today we are doing a lecture episode from the incredible Manly P. Hall, who is probably, well, definitely the most frequently reoccurring lecture guest provider for Midnight on Earth. The only prerequisite for someone to be on a Midnight on Earth lecture episode is that you already have to be dead, meaning you're graduated, you've moved on to the next world, because if you're here in this dimension, you're still alive. We should be able to talk for real, me and whoever that person is. But eventually, I plan to interview the person who created the soul phone. I have been in talks with them, but we do not have that phone yet. We can't talk to people who have graduated. So I have to settle for these lectures, these people that have moved on. Manly P. Hall is one of those people. And man, <laughs> I love his lectures. He's so incredibly intelligent. He was blessed with having a benefactor early in his life who essentially paid his way through life until he generated his own funds and just had the freedom. He had the freedom to just explore thinking. In fact, he started the Philosophical Research Society, which is still going in Los Angeles. There's so much I could say about Manly P. Hall, but before we say anything, I just want to let people know that this week, as with every lecture episode, I have a guest co-host, and it's Bryn Anderson of Vinyl Force Herbs. What? Hello, Bryn. It is? <laughs> I know, hey. as if it could be anyone else. I. <laughs> I don't even know who it would be at this point. I'm so happy with your performance. I wow. love having you on the show. It's it's just our dynamic, the rapport, just how we flow together. It's 
It's incredible. I love having you here. So Thank Brandon you. Anderson, Vinyl Forcers. <laughs> Another Manly uh, P. Hall lecture. I know we just did one like 12 episodes ago, and I usually like to space it out more, you know, like 30 episodes before I do a repeat or even more. But this is important because, like I said, I want to balance out that uh, Lucifer energy for people that are concerned with that. I still love you. I'm going to do this for you. We're going to talk about Jesus, the mystical Jesus, and his uh, most famous teachings, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to talk about the mystical connotations of that. Bryn, what do you think about that? I think that sounds pretty amazing. I have a feeling, I know you've been very busy with Vinyl Force Herbs, so I have a feeling you have not listened to my episode with Penelope Badger yet, have you? That is correct. I'm sorry to say I have not yet listened to it. I already knew that, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay because you don't have to have had listened to that episode to grasp all the incredible things Manly P. Hall is going to tell you about Jesus and the mystical teachings behind the incredible Jesus. Um, so, yeah, so there you go. Yeah, and I liked what you said earlier about how it is important to give everyone a voice to find the intersection because. I can imagine in your position and all the different people you interview and will interview, you're definitely not always going to agree with everything they say or, you know, even like what they say, but it's about finding common ground and finding those spaces where you can meet. That's so the- important. I mean, that's how you connect with people. That's how we heal the world. I mean, at its core, we have to find those connection points, those intersection points in order to build the bridges of healing to create the united earth that we're so in love with. It's it's already there. We just have to awaken to it. I'm in love with it. I, I want it more than you could possibly believe. I want it to be right here right now. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think everyone feels like the work they're doing is important. The things they're discovering, the things they're involved in are important And so if you can, if we can all find a way where those pieces meet and, you know, that we actually have more in common than we realize, and maybe we do want the same things, we're just finding them in different ways. And maybe people will find that actually what they're looking for turns out, well, actually, maybe that isn't quite where I was going. Actually, I like this other path. You never know where intersections will will take you. Or maybe those understandings were wrong. Maybe you had some paradigm-based pre-programmed thought forms injected into your consciousness and you needed somebody to tell you differently in order to learn a different perspective. And the other aspect is I'm never going to bring a guest on the show and just like criticize them and like back them into a corner and tell them everything they're saying is wrong. That's like being an energy vampire. Why would I want to like bring somebody on to make them feel bad and make them feel unwelcome? Everyone's welcome in the eyes of God, you know? So I just want to try to like, mimic that and say everyone's welcome here on midnight on earth i may not agree with every single thing that every single guest says as brind uh mentioned but that doesn't mean i'm not going to listen with an open mind and an open heart and just love that person like i'm supposed to and i want to do it anyway i'm compelled to do it as a loving being whether yeah whether the laws of the universe uh require that in its own way i don't even know how to say that but yes i'm here to serve i'm here to love like end of story Anyways, I digress now, (laughs) and we're going to listen to this lecture from the incredible Manly P. Hall. I just love this guy. He's a genius. It was from December 17th, 1961. So that's like 51 years ago. An incredibly uh, distant time for some of us. 
For others, it probably feels like just yesterday if you happen to be alive during that time and you were, you know, maybe 10 or 11 years old or 20 or 30 or who knows where you were. it's actually like 60. 61. Yes, you're right. Oh, my God. No, 10 more years. Poof. Yeah, just like that. <laughs> See, that is how time flows. I did my math wrong. Thank you, Brynn, for being here and correcting me and getting me on course. This is why I have co-hosts that keep me on course <laughs> for these episodes. Math lo- isn't actually usually my thing. But yeah, just, well, you did great this time. <laughs> a plus. Um, so let's talk about Manly P. Hall in a minute. We're going to do that. But first, I need you to do something for me. Go to bluecobracbd.com. That is bluecobracbd.com. And there you will find Blue Cobra CBD oil, the highest quality CBD oil you can find on planet Earth, period. And there's a reason for that. It is because the extraction method, how the CBD is extracted from the hemp flower is a proprietary method. It was developed by the person that owns Blue Cobra CBD. Howard Hitt, a.k.a. also known as Big H, created this. It uses no chemicals, no solvents, no gases. It's 100% natural and no one else has it. So there's only one place it can be. It's very logical if you think about it. There are different strengths. There's different varieties. There's the King Cobra Maximum Strength, Little King Cobra regular strength and wild thing CBD for pets, the highest quality medicine for your pets that are suffering. I love my cat dearly. And if he was suffering, his name's Amadeus. And if he was suffering, I would be giving him wild thing CBD for pets. You can get it at bluecoverCBD.com and there is a discount code. It is big H B I G the letter H That gets you free shipping on any order in the continental 48 United States. Check your local laws. If you're out of the country, out of the USA, to see if it's legal for you, you can contact Howard directly via his website. It has a money back guarantee. You get to keep the product. You get your money back. If You had to pay shipping and you didn't use our discount code. You would get that money back too. Howard is really putting himself out there. He created something so magical and powerful. It's unlike any other CBD product out there. I've tried so many, so many personally, very versed in that world, telling you there's nothing else like this. Try it for yourself. Use the discount code. Send me an email. Report back to me. Tell me exactly what you experienced personally. And we'll talk about it on one of these lecture episodes or a beyond the news episode where I can stretch out a little bit. So again, go there, bluecobracbd.com. That is bluecobracbd.com. And when you're done with that, follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. You can follow us there. Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google Podcasts, Audible, Stitcher, Podchaser, wherever you go to get your podcast, click that button that connects us so you know exactly what's going on. You get a notification on your device, a little watch, your pad, your phone, 
whatever you're using to interface with the podcast world, you get that notification and you know what's going on just in real time. And lastly, of course, I always say, tell a friend, tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts. That's how we grow this audience. We build this midnight on earth community and we spread the messages that these incredible guests have generously provided. And you also share what we learned from these lecture episodes from these graduated humans. So really powerful stuff and you want your friends to know about it. So bring them here. Midnightonearth.com. That is midnightonearth.com. All right. Blue Cobra social media shout out. Now done. And let us read Manly P. Hall's bio. For those who don't know, I urge anyone listening to this that has not heard of Manly P. Hall to do your research. Figure this guy out. He's going to blow your mind. Manly P. Hall, born 1901, graduated 1990, founded the Philosophical Research Society in 1934, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the dissemination of useful knowledge in the fields of philosophy, comparative religion, and psychology. In his long career, spanning more than 70 years of dynamic public activity. Mr. Hall delivered over 8,000 lectures in the United States and abroad, authored over 150 books and essays, and wrote countless magazine articles. Many of Mr. Hall's lectures have been transcribed and are available as pamphlets Others were taped live and the audio recordings are out there. He is perhaps best known for his 1928 classic, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, an encyclopedia of the world's wisdom traditions and symbolic disciplines. Today, younger generations are rediscovering the works and words of Manley Hall finding that the material he put forth so many years ago is still relevant and useful today. Mr. Hall's hope for humanity was to learn from the greatest minds of all times so that we may solve current problems, both in society and in the individual today. And that's the hope of this podcast as well. So yet again, we match frequencies and we dive into the world of Manly P. Hall. This is going to be really cool. Bryn, how are you feeling over there? Feeling good? Feeling great. Feeling ready to listen to Manly P. Hall. Always has insightful and timeless information. So Yes, they're very dense. His lectures are just jam-packed. They go in all these different directions, but it all flows together in this perfect dynamic uh, flow, as his bio talked about. And this is going to be focused on the Jesus archetype, which again... We'll talk about this at the end. And if you don't know, Brendan and I are here. We're listening to the lecture together. I have not personally, though I have checked out several dozen of Manley's lectures. This one specifically, I have not listened to. So it's going to be new to me, new to Brynn, new to you. And then at the end of the lecture, we talk about what he said and what we learned together. So it's me, 
Bryn and Manly and you. And my four colors of pens here I have for now. <laughs> and Bryn's four colors of pens, they're all here together. We're all listening with you. So hang out all the way till the end and we'll recap the entire thing. And I'll tell you what I think of the mystical Jesus. So there's a little teaser of what's to come. So here we go. This is Manly P. Hall, the Sermon on the Mount, a mystical interpretation. And this lecture again was December 17th, 1961. The Sermon on the Mount is perhaps one of the most difficult parts of the New Testament for the average person to accept as a code of conduct. From the earliest times when this code was promulgated, it came into direct conflict with the prevailing policies of the time. There has been a great deal of discussion, particularly in the last 50 years, as to the relationship of this code to ancient Judaistic law in a determination or effort to decide whether or not in this code Jesus was speaking on the authority of the elders of Jerusalem or in conflict with this authority. Jewish rabbis today are inclined to feel that this code is also acceptable uh, to the Orthodox Jew and that therefore it is within uh, the province of a rabbi teaching 2,000 years ago. Therefore, we have another acceptance uniting the two principal faiths that are found within the structure of the Holy Bible. Most persons feel that the Sermon on the Mount is simply unlivable. They mostly agree that it would be a wonderful thing if we could live it. That it represents perhaps the highest concept of uh, religious ethics that the world knows. But it is so lofty in its concept and so severe in its statements that the average individual feels that it has to be modified in some way. Perhaps the answer lies in trying to understand the perspective of this sermon in relationship to the people of the time. It is obvi obvious from the opening in, uh, introductory section that Jesus, having passed into this mountainous place, gathered his disciples around him, and also in the presence of a multitude of persons, delivered this sermon. Incidentally, the original sermon probably did not contain all of the elements now incorporated into it. It was built up from other statements which he made, which have a bearing upon the key thought or substance of the sermon, which is righteousness. There is something, therefore, to suggest that the sermon was directed 
primarily toward the disciples. Jesus is assumed to have known that these disciples were going forth as lambs among wolves, that they were going to promulgate a doctrine that would bring upon themselves persecution and in most instances martyrdom. It is quite conceivable, therefore, that he gave them certain extremely strict injunctions which they were to follow as examples of the faith which he taught. He seems to have felt that if they did not live this doctrine, they would be unable to influence others to do so. Also in this series of statements, which we call the Beatitudes, he protects the disciples in most instances from any reasonable objection that could be raised against them by the pagan world into which they were going. He taught them humility. He taught them to avoid controversy of all kinds. He taught them uh, to stand firm, placing the values of the Spirit above all temporal considerations. If we therefore assume that this code was first intended for those who constituted a small minority group and must protect their destinies against the pressures of criticism and condemnation, if we see this in the pattern, it will help us to understand the sermon uh, perhaps a little more uh, completely. Also, as the world has progressed gen generation after generation, Christian mysticism has risen to take its place among the great mystical systems of the world. I think the Sermon on the Mount particularly invites our consideration in terms of comparative religion. There are many phases of it, for example, that could not be clarified in terms of Christian orthodoxy. Uh, most of the uh, extremely conservative groups must face a completely literal application of the words of Jesus. To the mystic, however, there is another world, a world of internal value. And it is only in this inner world that man is really free to be himself, to live the things that are closest to his soul. In the inner world of his own consciousness, man can completely Christianize his way of life. He can become entirely dedicated to a code or a creed which might not be socially entirely acceptable. From this point of complete inner dedication and devotion, he may therefore permit his inner life to shine out through a series of quietudes of conduct, which should not in themselves produce any very grave complications in his own affairs. The great mistake has been, probably, 
And it has been a common mistake in most religions and a prevalent one among early Christian groups. The great mistake has always been to apply the code or the creed primarily to other people first, to demand of other persons a conduct, and to criticize or condemn them for lack of ability to live up to such a credo. If, however, instead of trying to impress this morality upon our neighbor, we apply it first to ourselves, we may then find that much of the general objection, of the public mind at least, is immediately relieved. We do know, and every mystic realizes, that we can live as we please, as an experience of our own consciousness. When we compare the Sermon on the Mount with the revelations of other mystics, not any longer with the orthodox creeds, but with other mystical beliefs, we discover it far more acceptable, closer uh, to the world concept of man's own inner life. Certainly it is very close to the doctrines of the Sufi, a very harmless group of people. It would certainly be in the spirit of the ancient Essenian teaching, a community with which we have become suddenly much more interested as a result of the Dead Sea Scrolls problem. We also see many parallels between this sermon and Buddhist mysticism. And there is no doubt that a book could be written on Zen and the Sermon on the Mount. These other systems, in their mystical simplicity, come very close uh, to this concept. And we find much of it in the beautiful prose poetry of Cahil Gibran. This mystical point of view cutting through and transcending the so-called reasonable ways of doing things, reveals also the mystical consummation that man is capable of a degree of insight in which that which seems possible uh, only to his mystical senses can become possible in his full and total life. Another point that I believe is uh, valid in this uh, consideration is the fact that mysticism, by its very development within man, causes certain changes in himself by which all things become possible. And that which to the objective mind is inconceivable can to the subjective not only be conceived but respected, acknowledged, and sustained. A great deal, therefore, depends upon the flow of psychic energy within the person as to whether he is able to face a challenge as great and as positive as the one involved in the Sermon of Jesus. There are many different ways in which we can approach this very beautiful sermon. But in this present generation in which we live, there are points that perhaps 
will help to clarify the basic concept. If man lived in this world a total and complete existence, if man faced an eternity of continuance here in this world alone, if the universe consisted only of those natural laws with which we are acquainted in science, then perhaps uh, the entire problem of the Sermon on the Mount would be beyond us and among the abstractions of possibility. But each individual lives not only in a material world, of which he is a citizen for a certain number of years, but he lives in a larger world, a world of consciousness. And about the laws of this world he knows comparatively little. Even today the researches in psychology have brought us only to certain subjective phases of man's mental and emotional life. We have not yet penetrated through into the spiritual root of man. We do not know, actually, the rules governing his universal citizenship. We do not know what his relationship to eternity and space and spirit actually are. This relationship or group of relationships must be clarified in some way if we are to meet the challenge of our time. It is quite conceivable and possible, therefore, that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to us about universal relationships, relationships which have a bearing upon our universal destiny, and perhaps reminding us, as we sometimes remind ourselves, that our achievements here do not guarantee us an acceptable life in space that even though we keep all the rules of our existing society, we must in full time depart from this society into another kind of life. In this other kind of life, most of the things we know here are no longer applicable. And whether we regard the possibility of reincarnation or not, it is certain that a great part of our existence is not lived in this kind of a world and also that regardless even of this factor, the very world we live in now is changing. And if as citizens of space we should return here a thousand years from now, later two, five, ten thousand years from now, that we will come back into a different dimension of life than that which we now know. Perhaps, therefore, in our sermon we are dealing with a universal code, that we have not yet learned to experience, but which must come and which must ultimately dominate our way of life. If, therefore, this sermon deals with an eternal nature of ourselves, with pa patterns of conduct that must ultimately be met if we are ever to have peace, security, and goodwill among men, then it is certainly valuable for us uh, to think about these things as deeply and as honestly and as sincerely as we can. I believe that, uh, in a sense, we get certain consolation from some of the Eastern philosophies relating to this problem. 
These philosophies are willing to admit that at this time man probably cannot live according to the fullness of any spiritual revelation. He does, however, possess the internal power to know that such revelation exists. He also has the internal integrity which causes him to hope, to wish, and to feel that this inner revelation is right, even though he cannot fully meet its challenge. I'm inclined, therefore, to feel that the most important practical thing for us to do is to move in the direction of the grand concept of this sermon. Admitting, even as we progress, that we will not be perfect in the fulfillment of these various rules. Perhaps, therefore, in a Socratic sense, we must first seek moderation. We must depart from such excess as we can gradually overcome in our own natures. We must come nearer and nearer to the value that we know to be right. We will occasionally fail. In some matters we may fail more than occasionally. But still, if we sincerely endeavor, we will discover that even a small achievement brings a marked and measurable result. If we are able to control ourselves even to a degree, the life we live and our association with other persons will be ennobled and enriched. Thus, perhaps, instead of taking the attitude uh, that it must be all or nothing, we should take the attitude of recognizing the need of growing up in a spiritual consciousness, moving step by step away from those values which we know are not right to those values which we know are right, and keeping ever clear in consciousness the vision of that which is ultimately right. Thus, by degrees, through the modification of conduct, we are able to attain greater and greater internal integration. We have already learned from psychology that merely battling with fixations and complexes will not end our psychic problem. That there is no use seeking a temporary adjustment. It may, of course, have certain immediate helpfulness, but it is not solutional. The only solutional thing that can happen to us is that we grow, grow gradually toward the truth that we know is right. And as we grow, perhaps gradually, naturally, and without too much pressure and tension, we do achieve, by degrees, these ends which we know to be necessary. Also, by natural processes of growth, we not only decrease the negative factors of the personality, but we also gain further strength from within ourselves to advance this growth. Perhaps at the beginning we have very little strength and a great deal of obstacle. But as we proceed, strength increases and obstacle decreases. So it is necessary to make some beginning. And certainly in the Sermon on the Mount, we have wonderful suggestions as to how this beginning can be made. And in the particular summary, of course, of the Beatitudes, we have 
a very clear creed of attitudes that are right. And most of these attitudes do appeal to us. And most of these attitudes would be, in the end, uh, the kind that would bring us to quietude. The whole purpose, it seems to me, of this sermon is to help the individual to remove from his experience the disorder, the discontent, and the inconsistency which together lead to trouble. Several books have been written by mystics and uh, modern religionists pointing out the importance of the Sermon on the Mount as a psychotherapeutic document. It is admitted that if man had this attitude within himself, sickness would be less common. The problems of daily existence would be less severe. And the tribulations and miseries which seem to flow in upon us would be less numerous. Actually, the internal integration of the person is his only strength against the pressure and confusion of the outside world. And in the type of situation that has arisen in the last few years of world experience, we have begun to recognize again that each individual must make his own private peace with reality. We can no longer assume that we can move along with great concourses of persons to some grand religious end. Such motion as there is in the collective must be due to the stressful effort of the individual. It is therefore a very important thing today to conceive of how we would act if we were in a fallout shelter under bombardment. We hope we never will be. But if this world as we know it was rocking around us, if our own futures could be measured maybe only in hours or days, with what security of inner life would we meet this? Such security must be our basis of religion. It must be a religion based upon some deep sympathetic rapport with universal values that cannot be destroyed by man's inhumanity to man. We need this inner integration. And the only way that we can possibly attain it is through increasing thoughtfulness within ourselves a renewed determination uh, to have in our own lives a faith that is stronger than emergency. Many persons believe they have this. Some do not believe. Some who believe they have it probably do not. Some who do not believe they have it probably do under the pressure of situations. Individuals whom we might not immediately regard as religious may face these emergencies better than we do. But whatever be the level of the person, it is certainly some strong internal conviction that must carry him through the emergency of the day. Now we come to think of something, as something such as a possible nuclear war as a unique disaster. It is unique, probably, in the number of persons who would be involved. 
but it is not unique in terms of the disaster in the life of each individual, because his own problems are always his disaster. And it is not possible to say that there is a, a great difference between an individual who is destroyed by nuclear fission or an individual who is destroyed on the freeway by a callous driver. Both persons make their departure from this way of life. Each must face the same transition, whether it occurs to himself alone at that moment or whether it occurs to millions of persons simultaneously. Each person must face this mystery alone, supported and sustained only by his own resources. I believe the Sermon on the Mount is, is concerned with this mystery of meeting the inevitable, meeting that which changes instantly our entire outlook toward value, meeting an emergency in which what we have becomes meaningless and what we are becomes all meaningful. And in that kind of an emergency, and we must all face it, whether there be war or no war, or whether there be uh, revolutions or no revolutions, we must each face the transition from a familiar way of life with its own peculiar little world and that great way of life, which is the motion of consciousness itself in the infinite. Jesus tries to give us this understanding in the creation of his two worlds, the world which belongs to Caesar and the world which belongs to God. And he clearly tells us that we must render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but we must reserve for God those things which belong to God. A certain part of our outer life here certainly belongs to Caesar. But our inner life, the eternity of consciousness in our own souls, belongs to God, always has and always will. Therefore, we have two codes we must live by. And if we must in some way decide that we cannot reconcile these two codes, then we must try the best we can to cling to that code which is the more important. And there seems to be no reasonable question that the most important code in all the world is that which will cause us to cling to truth, cling to reality, and be acceptable in the light of that divine power which is our source and substance. So in the principle of things, it is not perhaps as difficult as it is in the application. Also, we are concerned to some degree with wording. We are not sure entirely to what degree the wording contained in this uh, uh, sermon is the familiar wording with which we associate terms today. I looked over the new Bible. A little later, we're going to give a discussion of it in this next group of lectures to see whether out of this new translation a new thoughtfulness we have come to any better wordings on some of these situations. I do not think that we have. I think that the wordings as given in the King James Version are about as near to the original as we will get. We can be more literal. 
we can perhaps use more contemporary wording, but I am not certain that we add anything to the substance of meaning. I'm not sure that it is too important to us whether we refer to the mote in, in the eye of our neighbor and the beam in our own eye, or whether we follow the less imaginative version of the new edition and refer to the beam in our eye as a timber. I'm not sure that this adds anything to the essential value of the situation. Perhaps the timber suggests something to the contemporary woodsman or something, but I do not believe that it adds any clarity to our problem. Now, because some of the statements seem so starkly difficult, I want to discuss a few of them with you to see what we can do to clarify some of these problems. Beginning, therefore, with the section on the Beatitudes, we can say this as the first of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think the answer to this poverty of spirit does certainly not in mind that we are to be impoverished spiritually. Certainly the individual who has weakness in his spiritual nature is not going to be especially blessed. I think we have to go back to the Old Testament and to a number of the uh, earlier writings to find out when the Queen of Sheba came into the presence of Solomon. His grandeur was so great that it was written that she no longer had any spirit in her. I think by this we simply mean uh, a sense of overawed, being overawed by a sublimity or a greatness which assailing the roots of our own ego-centered spirit destroys it or takes away not spirit as we know it, but the sense of self-sufficiency, the sense of, of being actually proud in a subtle way on spiritual matters. I think, therefore, that the sense here in which the poor of spirit is meant signifies that we are no longer rich in our own conceits. I believe this is the spirit or thought that lies underneath it. We are so often moved by ambitions, by the sense of tremendous urgencies in our own nature, by pride, and by a selfness in ourselves, which is strongly opposed in Buddhism, for example. This sense of ego, this egoness, which causes us all to feel that we are right and to mistake self-will for divine will. The individual who feels himself to be completely sufficient without the presence of God or spirit in his own life would, I suspect, be the one who would be rich in spirit in the sense that it is used here as an undesirable situation. It is, I believe, rich in egoism, and that what we are really dealing with is the person who feels that his own abilities are equal to every emergency, and that therefore does not at any time sense the need within himself 
of a certain receptivity to universals. If man goes along blundering his way through life, he comes perhaps to the sense in the end that he is a kind of animal fighting for existence in a jungle. This type of attitude would, I suspect, be the thing which Jesus is attacking. He is telling us that the beginning of our ability uh, to experience the kingdom of heaven is a kind of acceptance. Not my will, but thine be done. But my will represents a kind of spiritual pride. And thy will, referring to God's will, represents a certain modesty, a certain admission that we are all poor in the presence of spirit, that we have a dependency upon life, that life is not a richness in ourselves, but a richness in God, and that we must to a certain measure have dependency upon this, and that self-pride, like all forms of pride, cometh before a fall. So I believe that what is meant here in the poor of spirit is freedom from self-pride and self-sufficiency. Every mystic knows this, but it of course is freedom from the self that is spelt with a small s. It is freedom from the ego self. It is not freedom from the divine self, but it is a turning away from this sufficiency based upon our relationship with external things to a humble or less aggressive attitude, one of receptivity and acceptance in which we become aware that we are all together mutually dependent upon one life, that this one life alone is real, that it is not a wealth that belongs to us, but we belong to it. That it should not be a source of pride in us, because all life shares it together. And that recognizing that we are gradually overcoming self-will, that we are gaining a different dimension, a dimension of acceptance of divine will, which makes us naturally humble. Humble without being, in any sense of the word, abased by it, but rather humble with gratitude, with acceptance, and with the realization that all we are, we owe to a life beyond our human personal life. I believe this is the type of thinking that underlies the verse, and most mystics who have worked with this subject are of that mind. Another one here that I think is interesting because it is so difficult for us uh, to understand is blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. I believe this verse is perhaps one of the most difficult because I do not believe that we could assume that heaven wants us to mourn or wishes us to, uh, to be sorrowful. I don't think that the, the purpose of the verse is therefore in the area of its first 
and apparent statement, but in something that is deeper than this. Actually, man in most of the emergencies of life comes closer to the source of life than in those days and years in which apparently he is comfortable and contented with the situation in which he finds himself. As we sit around the bed of a sick child, something happens to us. The uh, sense of self-sufficiency disappears. I've known a number of very good physicians who have known this and have sensed it perhaps more than the average person because they are so constantly in the presence of situations which reveal the smallness of human knowledge. In any area of great solemnity of need, where the individual comes face to face with a loss, with a tragedy, with a situation completely beyond his own capacity, it is in that type of situation that man suddenly becomes aware of the importance of the divine plan and the divine will. It is therefore perhaps this that we may say, that, um, that adversity in the life of man is in a strange way blessed, because it is adversity that brings him back to realities. While his own judgment appears to be adequate, he is very proud and strong in his own right. But when his own judgment appears not to be adequate, then there is confusion. And out of this confusion comes the only way in which man can turn, and that is the way of faith. His confusion must lead him to the acceptance of something stronger than his own purpose and his own will. So in this, those things which in the material world may seem to work the greatest hardship upon us, may well be those things which in our larger universal life will bring us most directly into the realization of universal need. Therefore, in the problem of the world of Caesar and the world of God, apparently the average person will only turn to the great universe when the universe that he has commonly known becomes inadequate. When man is in trouble with Caesar, he begins to think about God. But while he is getting along well with Caesar, Caesar is an adequate ruler of the world. Uh, we know this, uh, for instance, in a very simple way in the modern entertainment field. Uh, not more than 10 or 15 years ago, the motion picture industry was a vast, successful organization. Every little producer and director and actor was perfectly certain that he knew the answer to everything. Now this whole pattern has disappeared, swept away. All this certainty is gone. And today, where once these infallible individuals rule supreme in their small worlds, we have areas of land that will soon be subdivided for other purposes. This change in the pattern of things was a very important change. 
because the situation of success as it was known then was gradually leading to an excessive state in which more and more of true value was being lost. And actually the film industry finally fell simply because it never knew how to use its own instrument wisely. It was never able to be the great meter of progress that it could have been. It became bogged down in success. And I believe this is the type of thing that out of the failure of those things which we commonly regard as sufficient must come our growing attention for that which is beyond. In the universal value of things, that which brings us toward truth is that which is most blessed. And in our way of life, the things that bring us toward truth are usually adversity. Under such conditions, adversity is necessary. Adversity is only an aspect of universal law. Universal law is right. Universal law is good. Universal law is blessed. And those who, through the experiencing of certain reversals in this world, really suddenly come to appreciate and understand the meaning of the principles involved, these are indeed the ones to whom a greater light is to come. Also, it is probable, as many great mystics have pointed out, that man really never touches the depth of himself unless he is called upon uh, to meet the challenge of a great pain or sorrow in his own heart. It is only in depth that the person gains strength. And depth comes to us largely through emergency and responsibility. But without this depth, we cannot grow. And if therefore we must grow to peace through pain, then the pain that brings us peace is a medicine we must accept. If in the case of a sick person it is indicated that only some heroic remedy, perhaps surgery, is going to correct the condition, then the individual must face this pain for the good that it will ultimately accomplish for him. In our way of life, because everything that goes wrong materially is a wrench upon us, and because our center of consciousness is so set in material things, anything which would force us to accept the importance of spiritual value may come as a hurt. But it is only an apparent hurt, for from this hurt must come our redemption. From this hurt must come the understanding that opens for us a much larger universe. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There's been a lot of discussion lately as to the meaning of God's meek, and I think that uh, several, several have suggested that by God's meek might be implied the birds, the little creatures. These forms of life, like the flower in the garden, and some have gone so far as to suggest that if at pre present conditions prevail, that it is quite possible that the birds and the beasts and the flowers will inherit the earth because the 
so-called advanced creature has lost dominion. And it is possible even to rationalize this in a semi-scientific way, for it is quite certain that these meek things that have lived forever under the will of heaven and not under the self-will of themselves are not lawbreakers as man is, that in continual obedience to the law they are some way given a power of salvation, and that in all probability in some wonderful and mysterious way it is the law keeper who will survive, not the lawbreaker. But in a more normal human relationship to this pattern, there is a tremendous dynamic in meekness that we have never been able to understand. I was talking to someone about this not long ago and got a rather interesting and confusing answer. This person said, yes, they believe in meekness, but they don't believe in a weak kind of meekness. Uh, they don't believe in a groveling kind of meekness. They don't believe in an abject form of it. As this person finally concluded, they, they believe in a kind of meekness that gets up on its hind legs and does what it wants to. Now, just exactly what kind of meekness that is, is not entirely clear. But apparently, 19 centuries of Christian theology has not clarified the point. I think meekness is best exemplified, perhaps, in some of the mystic orders of Asia. Meekness is gentleness. It is child-likeness. It is a simple, natural acceptance of values. Meekness is a kind of security in which the person cannot be knocked from a pedestal because he has never been on one cannot come into dynamic conflict with truth because he has never created an institution of untruthfulness. That admitting from the beginning his own weaknesses, admitting from the beginning that he lives in a universe infinitely more vast than himself, and further admitting that his own judgment is not wise, that he does not know, something that we rather hesitate to acknowledge, the individual comes into a better relationship with life. For man, the relationship of himself to life must always be the relationship of child to parent. We do not know. We believe, we think, we hope, and we fear. We have certain convictions which we can loudly pronounce, but these convictions prove inadequate even while we are pronouncing them. So mysticism has always taken the attitude that if the individual no longer takes it for granted that his self-knowledge is sufficient, if he is willing to be quiet, if he is willing to admit ignorance, if he is willing to quietly open himself to that knowledge which he needs, then perhaps truly wisdom can come to him. But as Jesus himself tells us, no one is good but the Father. And we may add to this further the thinking that no man is wise but the Father. We are all seeking wisdom. 
But when we think we have it, we become proud. When we know that this wisdom must always excel ourselves, then perhaps we are meek. Perhaps we are meek in the continual recognition of need, and that this need can only be fulfilled by that spirit which abides in the innermost and the furthermost of space, that we are not able to fully guide our own destinies, that we are not able to be sure, and that when we lack this meekness, we also lack an open receptivity to that which is better. The opinionated person forever expressing his own opinion is never aware of the opinion of heaven regarding him or anything else. The individual who is wise in his own conceit is nearly always on the verge of dilemma. So instead of believing that we know almost enough and that the next step will take us to omniscience, let us rather follow the mystic attitude of a new kind of adjustment with life an adjustment of appreciation, an adjustment which causes us to become instantly aware of the instruction that comes to us, and no longer mindful as to whether we think we know more or know less, rather a constant openness, not necessarily an openness to the opinion of everyone else, but an openness to the inmoving of universal fact to be gained through the experience of living itself. And Lao Tzu, the great Chinese philosopher, sitting on the side of the hill, received into his own soul uh, the wonder of the universe. So in a childlike mood of acceptance, we can reach out to the stars and perhaps even grasp them, when actually in our so-called maturity we have lost this childish or childlike charm by which we can actually achieve much. Mencius refers to the child mind or the child consciousness and prays that we may never lose it. And I think it is this openness of the child, this sense that there is so much to know that is implied by this meekness as contrasted to this feeling of our great institutions and great intellectualists of how much is known. Actually, how much is known by a world that cannot defend itself against itself. How much is known by the individual who cannot live well or die with a good hope. Rather than let us admit uh, that we are not adequate. And in this humility, in this gentle acceptance of our own state, a state that must have been intended or would not be here, to accept as children once more the wonder of life and build with a more constructive child-likeness than we have ever realized or sensed before. I have a feeling that this is the type of thought that is contained in this uh, particular uh, verse of the Beatitudes. Then we have another one. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
Now, righteousness is an interesting word, and we haven't given it considerable, haven't given it consideration as we should. Actually, the word suggests uh, not the kind of righteousness we think of theologically, but righteousness in the sense of rightness. Rightness in this meaning, uh, carrying with it more than intelligence, more than knowledge, more than virtue, uh, suggesting a state of total well-being through the acceptance of the laws of existence. Righteousness is therefore to live rightly in a universe of divine laws and purposes. Perfect adjustment, perfect harmony with the plan which has been given to us and which is the very substance of our existence. Righteousness is therefore life lived according to the will of the universal consciousness. That if we live this kind of life, we are right in the highest and fullest sense of the word. Folks will say, but we don't know what this is. How are we going to attain this degree of righteousness? How are we going to keep rules which we really do not understand? This causes us to go back perhaps to one of the previous statements, namely that if we are quiet, if we are humble, if we are gentle and not self-opinionated, these rules that we want to keep will manifest themselves to our consciousness by keeping us. The moment we stop making mistakes, the facts begin to clarify. The moment the individual does not do what is wrong, he is living in the substance of that which is right. He may not be able, with the mind, to answer all questions, but if he moves into harmony with the law, as Lao Tzu tells us, he becomes one with the law. The law moves him. The law sustains him. And he experiences it fully within himself. He becomes lawful by the simple religious observance of refraining from lawlessness. The moment he lives his life according to a better degree of his own insight, as he possesses it, in that very moment, the state of righteousness enlarges in him, and he becomes more and more aware of that which is right. Through trial and error, we come to the same discovery. We learn through certain action that certain action is wrong. We have been doing the wrong things for ages. They have never produced rightness. We have broken the rules, and we have never enjoyed the fruits of righteousness. Therefore, while it is true that man cannot know more than he is, he cannot comprehend beyond his own capacity to use, still, to a very large degree, he can increase the experience of value in his own life when he relaxes away from the continual burdening of his life with things not valuable. It is the same thing that Buddha tells us very clearly, that we cannot create right. 
nor can we move victoriously from ignorance to illumination in a single jump. What we must do is gradually diminish the not right, step by step, exploring through the consequences of things done, observing the effects of our own attitudes and thoughts, and where these effects are not right, they are not righteous. And that which in the end leads to disaster is not the right road. And as long as we are willing to compromise and follow the ways of disaster, we must come in the end to that disaster which we have caused or sustained by our own conduct. To the degree, however, that we relax this pressure toward disaster, to the degree that we begin to cultivate naturally those graces which our own hearts tell us are good, to the degree that we begin to love the beautiful and serve the good and venerate the one, to the degree that we slowly relax those prejudices and opinions and intolerances which we know are wrong, as these relax within us, the state of righteousness enlarges in us. For righteousness is just normalcy. It is the thing as it should be, which comes into its own fullness when we stop preventing it by forcing things to be as they should not be. Therefore, righteousness is actual rightness. It is the experience of harmonious adjustment with the universal purpose so that we are truly one with the Father in the purposes which govern our conduct. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I think this is a verse that we all need and we all could use. There are many times in life when we overlook the opportunity to be merciful. And we sometimes even wonder what this word means in daily conduct of affairs. I think it means exactly in this case what it does say. I think it means that the individual should be kindly, gentle, peace-loving, uh, quick to come to the rescue of that in sorrow or in trouble, quick in heart to prevent pain or to heal pain should it arise. I think the merciful person is simply the human being who follows the instinct of his own heart. I think between us and mercy as we know it today is cost. Costs in terms of personal desires, or costs in terms of emotional ego stress. Mercifulness is, as uh, we are told in the famous court scene in The Merchant of Venice, the quality of mercy is not strained, it falleth as a gentle dew of heaven upon the place beneath. Mercy is something that is a universal thing. The mo most religions have taught us that there is a mercifulness of God and that by this mercy 
all of its creatures are sustained, protected, and loved even while they make mistakes, and that this mercy will bring the atheist home just as easily and quickly as the believer. That in the light of heaven, as Akhenaten, the great Egyptian, pointed out, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The believer is not, in all cases, uh, better treated than the unbeliever. Because in the great mystery of things, believing and unbelieving, both come in the end to truth, come in the end to the tremendous redeeming power of life. Northern Buddhism, perhaps, has most clearly pointed out that there can be nothing in the universe that is not brought to peace and salvation. That the law which seems to us so strong and so severe is really a law of infinite mercy. And in Eastern uh, wisdom, the deity Kuan Yin or Kan Nan, the gracious principle of mercy, is forever pouring forth the waters of salvation. The merciful heart, the heart that is quick in sympathy and genuine, the merciful heart which is quick to forgive and forget, that, hold no, that holds no grudge against life, that is always responsive to the need of life, even though this need may sometimes be exploited. I think the mercifulness of man is his help. If he is exploited, if the person to whom he does a good deed perverts that deed, misuses it or deceives or exploits the one that does this deed, Still, this is no concern of the merciful person. For mercy rewards itself. It is not rewarded because we are able to live in the presence of the evidence that our kindness has been recognized. Our strength lies in the inevitable instinct to be kind that rises within ourselves. And if this instinct is guided by wisdom, we may then have no false hopes as to how well we will be remembered or how deeply we will be appreciated. These things are not important. The importance from a mystical standpoint is that man shall instinctively be kind, that he will instinctively be thoughtful and will instinctively place the good of others above his own good. This is the law of the universe. It may make things a little complicated here, but it will simplify the internal life of the person. For in his efforts uh, to protect himself from imposition, he locks his own consciousness, therefore does himself a final ill, even while he is trying to protect himself. Then we have another verse, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This undoubtedly is one of the most complete statements of mysticism that we know. And how shall we understand purity of heart? I think we shall understand it not merely in terms of virtue and vice or morality or unmorality. I think we shall think of it really in terms of the simple state of goodness in our own natures. 
that the pure of heart is the individual actually in within whose nature there is no guile. The one like the guileless fool in the story of Parsifal or the pure knight Sir Galahad in the cycle of the grail. It is the simple state of being good. Not in a fussy little goodness that we are constantly trying to impose upon others or make others believe that we have, but a deep, simple sincerity. That in the actual sincerity, the inner determination to do the best that we know within our means and power at any given time, in this conviction fully applied to the very utmost of our ability, we have the greatest source of strength that we possess. It is this purity of heart which will save us from the psychologist's couch. It is this purity of heart which will prevent us from being imposed upon. Now we sometimes feel that if we are nice enough, kind enough, generous enough, and good enough, we will lose everything we have. This is a very ad uh, normal and proper attitude to most people. But this is not the cause of loss. No man has lost anything because he was good. He lost because he tried to be good and he was foolish at the same time. No one has ever been defeated by his virtue. He has been defeated because actually this sense of purity, of rightness within himself was not adequate to protect him against uh, poor judgments, against flattery, against imposture, and he was trying to substitute purity for common sense. Now actually if we attain a complete inner detachment from false value, we will have common sense. Because just as surely as the child heart or the child consciousness gives us this complete sincerity, so surely the complete sincerity of the maturely attained consciousness cannot be attacked by deceit. It simply cannot be deceived, because to be deceived there must be something wrong with us. Well, there's something wrong with all of us, so we will always be deceived to some degree. But we have no right to believe that this deceit is due to the fact that we are good, or that we have been generous, or that we have been kind. The trouble has been that we have not yet been strong enough to do all that was necessary to achieve virtue. On the other hand, even though we are deceived or exploited or to a measure injured in an effort to be kind, to be good, to be true, we are still better off because at least in our own consciousness we are not conscience-stricken. We have done the best that we could. The other person's exploitation of it is not our immediate problem. We may regret, however, that our wisdom was not great enough to also protect that other person. But I think there is no question in the world 
that purity of heart is this mystical thing. And this fact that it leads to the statement that they shall see God suggests the mystical experience, suggests illumination as a result of the individual having overcome all of the self-imposed attitudes which may be regarded as impurity of heart. Also, it is pointed out here that it is the way of the heart that will lead to the sight of God, rather than perhaps the way of the mind. And I think we know what is meant by this, that consciousness literally is seated in the heart, and that therefore consciousness expresses itself more perfectly and completely through emotion than it does through thought. And that of all emotions that may lead to the experience of the immediate presence of God, the simple, pure emotion of a clear faith must be the most important. And faith can only really be complete, really full, really adequate, when the individual is no longer the victim of the inconsistencies of his own intellect or of his own conduct. So that purity simply means relaxation away from what is wrong and to abide in the simple nature of reality itself. And those who do this shall inwardly see God. They shall be aware of the full purpose and measure of the divine plan and its operation in their own lives. Now also we have here this statement, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now there are some who are born with the instinct to peace. There are others who seem to be born with the instinct to conflict. And today you can defend any of these attitudes. People say they have to stand up for what they believe. But that isn't what they are really doing in most cases. They do not have the full understanding of the true principle of peace. I think one of the greatest exponents, perhaps, of this concept of the, of the tremendous power of peace was the late Mohandas Gandhi. Of all the great men of modern time, those who have become the leaders of world affairs, perhaps he has given the loftiest example of the power of man to achieve that which is necessary and right with a minimum of aggressiveness, with a constant emphasis upon nonviolence and the determination to win through respect and regard and admiration and to win by calling upon the other person uh, to express a higher degree of conduct than he had originally intended. Certainly, we know, and we have every reason from history and record to recognize the fact that those who live by the sword must perish by the sword. That the one thing that is necessary in this world today is one great victory of peace. That what we desperately need is to create a cause of peace that in some way we must set peace in motion, 
Peace is not caused by war. Peace is caused by peace, by lawfulness, by the solution of problems according to the levels of consciousness which man has attained, and not solutions based upon a bestial level which he is supposed to gradually have overcome. Now it may well be that it is not easy to imagine that we are going to be able to gather a world in peace, that even such dreams as the United Nations cannot accomplish this. But we know inside of our own lives that this peace is right, that we must ultimately find that which we have earned, and that we must earn peace. One way, in a sense, that we can earn it is that each person shall become, so to say, a witness before the world of the peace in his own heart. Individually, perhaps we can earn peace for the collective. For if enough individuals practice peace in consciousness, peace becomes a law in this world. And by degrees, this better consciousness may move into the political areas. Nations will not find peace alone. Man must find it in himself and bestow it upon his own collectives, be they nations, races, or institutions. But peace must come. And the same kind of peace that is necessary to bring law and order to nations must also bring law and order to the discords within the consciousness of persons. If we were at peace, we would be a healthy people. If we were at peace, we would know how to cooperate. If we were at peace, we would be courteous and thoughtful. We would not impose upon others, nor would we exploit others for the advancement of our own small estates. If we were a peaceful people, we would live in comradeship and fraternity with our neighbors, our families, and our friends. Now, the larger things we cannot do, but we can recognize that the way to a serene life is a way from conflict, a way towards the conscious experience and the continuing experience of a gracious peacefulness in our own spirits. Wherever in daily living, we are tempted, therefore, to depart from peace into a destructive attitude, into complaint, into criticism or condemnation, into an aggressive action of revenge or retaliation. When these impulses rise in us, let us remember that these are the impulses that has given the world 8,000 wars. Therefore, we cannot expect nations to live at peace if individuals claiming a reasonable degree of self-enlightenment are themselves not able to live together in peace. Peace begins with the individual. It begins in the heart of the mystic. It begins with the acceptance of the rightness of life and the realization that if we accept life as a way of learning, we can accept it peacefully. But if we accept it merely as a challenge to the gratification of our own purposes, we will be at war forever. So it is in the consciousness and the power of the mystic that peace must be found. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Perhaps this is something we also must realize, namely that as we do try uh, to live better, we do have certain debts uh, which somehow come up and hit us in the face. The individual does not become good by being weak. And that is one of the things that has been pointed out in connection with the Sermon on the Mount. Many people feel that it is negative, that if you do all these things, you're just going to be a nobody. That if you do all these things, no one is going to respect you, everyone is going to walk on you, and you will be a total failure. Many sincerely believe this. But as most of the uh, Near Eastern mystics, particularly the Sufis, have pointed out, the way of righteousness is not negative. It demands more of real strength than any aggressiveness that you can possibly hope to build upon. The individual who is weak can never attain this very thing. They can never attain peace of soul. It is one of the great treasures of life. It is one of the ultimate goals of human endeavor, and it will never be gained by weakness. It, is requ it requires much more of strength to be gentle than to be cruel. It takes much more of integrity to be fair in all things than it does to flare up with the selfishness and self-centeredness which dominates so many persons. The quiet, constant control of self is not only a difficult path, but it is one in which we will be to a measure, as the disciples were, and I think this is particularly aimed at them, that they will be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. They will not only be persecuted, perhaps, by other people, ridiculed, scoffed at, uh, injured, but we can look back upon the lives of those who have given us the most and realize how shabbily they were treated. Yet if we ask someone like Socrates if he was shabbily treated, he would probably say no. If we ask these people whether or not they regretted the way in which they had lived and the consequent persecution that came upon themselves, they would most certainly say no, they do not regret. Because while to the person who is still living in a partial consciousness, uh, the injuries that come to those who try to live better seem to be a horrible punishment. When the person who does live better has the advantage of the greater consciousness in himself, he is beyond and above any injury that can be done to him. The consciousness of union with truth, the eternal sense of being one with good and with God, is so much more a compensation that no injury committed against such a person by Caesar or his domains could injure that person in any way in comparison to any relapse in his own conduct. 
No one on earth can injure us to the degree that our own temper can. No one on earth can persecute us as much as our own desires can persecute us. And it is far better, as all mystics have pointed, well and clearly, that man shall be right with God than that man shall be acceptable to man. If man is truly right with God, however, he will be acceptable to all honorable persons, and he will ultimately uh, be able to contribute to the gradual reclamation of those less honorable. And if we do remain true to our principles, you will be surprised to see the inevitable social benefits that will result. We have several great social problems today that exist only because there is no one willing to be true to himself. I'm thinking a little bit of the complaints that are arising relating to juvenile delinquency, complaints relating to the rate of divorce. Fifty percent of marriages break up in the state of California. These things represent problems. Our discontent with entertainment, the constant complaint against radio and television, against literature and plays, this complaint is meaningless, but if these persons who complained would simply refrain from cooperating with that which they regard to be wrong, they would get what they regard to be right. And in a very short time, those few who feel themselves persecuted for the sake of righteousness would realize that by standing together, righteousness is achieved and that then they will all be much happier than they were before. There is nothing in truth that finally hurts. It is only the fact that we will not live what we know to be true that creates the conflict which becomes hurtful. Therefore, we can then end with the final beatitude, which, uh, beatitude, which said, Blessed are ye. When men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. I think that this is the summary of the entire problem, that if the individual is persecuted because of his principles, and if his principles are right and reasonable, if he is persecuted because he lives better, not differently. Many people are persecuted for eccentricity. This is not what we refer to. We refer to, however, to the fact that the individual may seem to suffer or seem to lose because he is better. But for such a person, for what small damage there may seem to come to him. There is an infinite enlargement of value. And there is always the question as to whether it is better to be acceptable to men or acceptable to God. And those who live well will be acceptable to all good men. And no one can please anyone, no one can please everyone anyway. So it is better that we please the good.
by the performance of the good in ourselves. In any generation, this may lead to certain conflict with persons of other attitudes, but it is not necessary that this conflict be unreasonable. It is not necessary that we be aggressive. It is simply necessary that we stay with the principles we believe and live them. If we do this, we will ultimately bring the world to these principles. And if these principles are right, we will all be right together. Whereas if we have no principles and, ref and refrain entirely from any solid conviction, our world drifts into an infinite chaos from which it is difficult for a recovery to be achieved. We are now living in the evidence of compromise. We are living in a world that has not stood strong for the principles it believes. We have today seven great living religions in the world. These religions affect the lives of five-sixths of all living persons. These religions are for the most part founded in a solid morality, in basic ethical principles that would be solutional if we could make them work. And the Sermon on the Mount tells us very simply that they must work or else man must continue in the disaster which he has created for himself. They must work because man, in order to gain the spiritual end for which he was created, must pass through certain testing, must prove his own dedication to value. The true wisdom which he seeks is the most priceless treasure in all the world. It is indeed the pearl of great price, and for it he must pay the great price. And the great price is not in dollars, nor is it in terms of power or authority. This great price is absolutely democratic. It is not nearer to those more privileged or further from those less privileged. The great price is sincerity. And this cuts through the rich and the poor, the great and the lowly. The, per, the price of inner peace and of health and of world peace, the price of understanding between men, of tolerance and generosity and friendship and faith, this price is sincerity and the courage to live it. And if we do that, we will come collectively and individually to this good end which we desire. If we do not achieve it, then we must face its consequences in our own conduct. But regardless of what happens, regardless of the world in which we live, the good person, the person essentially right, the sincere person has the better time. This may not be true in terms of the opinion of a less sincere person, but this less sincere person has an opinion that is worthless because it cannot judge that which it has not experienced. So those who feel that there is a great adversity in the Beatitudes are those who have not experienced this need. Those, however, who have clung most closely would be perfectly willing at any moment to exchange all the wisdom of the mortal world for this other wisdom that comes in the spirit of those who keep the faith and keep the law and come to internal integration.
Well, our time is up, so I guess that's all we can do with the subject this morning. Whoa, people. Okay, we're back. That was an incredible, incredibly dense lecture from the great Manly P. Hall. And just like every other lecture that he puts out there, probably all 8,000 of them, he starts off talking about one thing, which then fractals into the next thing, into the next thing. And then he's just unloading this mystical knowledge and he ties it all up in the end. It's really powerful stuff. And I just appreciate the fact that someone recorded that because being it's from 1961, I mean, oh my God, it sounded so good. So crystal clear, had really great quality. Bryn, what a lecture, huh? Such a good lecture. I absolutely loved every second of that. And I will say, I agree with everything he says. You know, I was talking earlier about how I don't always agree with everything. I will say right here, right now, I agree <laughs> with every single thing that Manly P. Hall says in this lecture and probably in every single lecture. It was so good. I mean, it just talked about Jesus kind of giving us this download, this code of conduct about universal relationships, a universal code. Because he said, like he said, we don't know the rules of universal citizenship yet. We're still figuring it out on earth. So he kind of broke it down and just talked about some of the things that could apply to all humans that came through the Jesus story, the Sermon on the Mount, that can help us. It can help all of us. It doesn't really matter your religious affiliation. He pointed out the different variations throughout other cultures and how they all kind of coalesced in that same understanding. It was really powerful stuff. Right. I loved how he talked about what we get caught up in the material world and the way that we filter things and judge things and that this goes so much beyond this. This isn't about our material rules or the, you know, the way of Caesar, as he talks about, you know, everything in this 3d world that he's looking at, um, what the sermon on the Mount is in our universal selves and timeless, no matter, you know, how many lives, how many dimensions, all these different things that we could go through, that these are the universal laws that carry us through. It's so, Yeah. You know, he kind of reminds me of Gandalf from Lord of the Rings in a way. He just has that deep knowledge, you know, it just really hits you super hard. And again, super thankful that it was recorded. Right. And you know what he talks about in this lecture and when he brings up Christianity and other lectures is just living in a Christ-like way. Like the suffix T-I-A-N is like, means like. So a Christian is Christ-like. It's virtually impossible to get there as a human as we are right now, but it's all about learning and growing into that individually and collectively. I think that that was a really important point. Absolutely. And that the internal piece the working on yourself, the worrying about yourself. I thought it was funny when he was talking about how most religious tenets or, you know, values that people have, they immediately place on others and then judge them as to how well <laughs> they're doing them or not. And if we all, I mean, I think about that all the time. If we all just worried about ourselves, like, wow, what a different place we would be in. If we never were concerned or judge what someone else was doing, but if we were 
all trying to be our best selves and follow even little pieces of these laws. Like, whoa, what a different place we would be in right now. Yeah. And one other thing um, that actually reminded me of some of the prosperity teachings is when he spoke about how one little movement in the right direction puts you on a different course. And that it's that like, you don't have to be perfect today. You don't have to do it all today. And there's no need for judgment of that. It's that every little thing you do right puts you on the course for rightness or puts you in a better place than you were yesterday. It puts you in a different frequency than you were five minutes ago. As soon as you set yourself on that path, it's, you look back in a year and your arc is completely different than it might have been. Yes, it's a cascade of choices. Like once you make that choice, then the next choice happens, the next choice happens. And like you said, Brent, it changes your frequency and suddenly you're in this different place. And yes, you make mistakes. Even Manly P. Hall admitted that he makes mistakes and continues to make mistakes because that is the growth process. You just got to get back on the spiritual horse, like I often say, <laughs> and just start riding. Just keep riding writing that thing. And I just want to point out like how every guest, almost every guest that we bring on brings up Jesus in some aspect, the most mystical people, new age people, they all talk about Jesus. They all talk about communicating with Jesus, how Jesus was one of the first spirits or, or entities or archetypes that they channeled. It's, it's really powerful stuff. This Christ consciousness, this Jesus archetype just shows up everywhere. And for a really long time in my early kind of spiritual explorations in my late teens, early 20s, I wanted to reject the Jesus story because I put it through the conventional religious filter. Uh, like that was Jesus for me, even though I understood some of the mystical bigger picture things. I knew there was something more there, but my initial response was just to reject it. You know, it came from the McDonald's dimension, so to speak. So, you know, but what I learned over time is that there is incredible truth to it. The human being that we know as Jesus was real, lived. I wasn't sure for a really long time if it was just like this aggregation of world mythologies over potentially hundreds of thousands of years and just this metaphorical kind of understanding and this person never lived. But really it was Ram Dass. When I read Ram Dass talking to his guru, Neem Karoli, about Jesus, he asked Neem Karoli if Jesus existed. And Neem Karoli said, yes, they killed him for telling the truth. They, they killed him for telling the truth. So for Neem Karoli, who was incredibly tapped in, he was an actual real guru in the truest sense. He talked about the truth of Jesus existing. Now, does that mean that there isn't like this aggregated mythology that was pinned to the Jesus story, Egyptian mythology, ancient mythologies that we don't even know about. We've lost and other cultures, mythologies. Yes. But you have to understand that that human being existed, tapped in, learned something and taught people that higher vibrational information, that higher frequency information. And it's helping us thousands and thousands of years later from his original existence until now. And it's just still going. It's mind blowing to me. What a powerful human being. Right. And it was about being 
not only a good human, but a good citizen of the universe or the multiverses or whatever. And it has nothing to do with any specific religion or being, you know, part of something, like you said, belonging to the McDonald's dimension or, you know, just like this <laughs> thing, like, you know, it, it's not about any label that we would put on it. It's just about those universal laws of the pure hearts and, you know, the, the humility and the openness of allowing the universe to flow through you and what that, what truth that is. Yes. And actually living in love at the core of it, it's all love, which is the foundational structure of all things. So that is what Jesus was really teaching. In my opinion was getting to love, finding love for your neighbor, finding love for your fellow man, seeing the compassion in situations that may cause you trouble and strife loving your enemy. It's just so mind blowing. What he was talking about was tapping into the base frequency of the universe, the core frequency, which is love. And then becoming that, that is the Christ consciousness that is tapping into the Christ within is tapping into that true infinite love, which ultimately comes from the source. And of course, towards the end, Manly talked about the philosophy of peace, because when you get to that understanding of love and living love, then of course you want to promote and promulgate peace. You want the world to live in that peaceful frequency. And he talked about some strategies for that. It was really powerful. It was an incredible lecture. I'm really glad we listened to it. I appreciate you listening to it with us, with myself and Bryn and we're going to do it again. You know, we love Manly P. Hall. He's got 8,000 lectures. I think we've only done like six or seven. So we've got a lot to go. But before we go, Bryn, is there anything else you want to talk about in your notes that you took so eloquently and beautifully? <laughs> um, well, I don't know. I guess just what I'm looking at right now is just those two beatitudes about the blessed are the merciful and blessed are blessed are those who are persecuted. And just speaking to that, that peace that that mercy rewards itself and that no injury in our human existence is powerful enough to dominate the faith in the universal goodness. So I just really appreciate that what he speaks to how powerful that being merciful and living for truth and goodness that those rewards are greater than any persecution or any um, sort of hardship that could befall you in the human dimension. Yeah, definitely. It's just essentially living in that love frequency, the truth you're in a higher state of awareness. You're beyond the material world. So whatever happens to you while you're in this material form, whatever punishment or whatever you suffer because of living in truth, nothing could diminish what that truth energy provides. I think that's what he's talking about there, but Bryn, thank you so much for coming. It was incredible lecture, incredible episode. Everyone check out her website, vital V I T A L vinyl force herbs. She has incredible line of products there. And this is it. This is a wrap for this week. So on that note, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next week. Midnight on Earth.